How many of you are glad for that truth? Would you say amen? Praise God. Would you take your Bible this morning and turn to John 12, please? John chapter 12. Last Sunday, when we finished out our passage, Jesus had come into the city of Jerusalem. We call it his triumphal entry. We took two weeks to talk about that. We covered it from John 12 here and also from Luke chapter 19 last Sunday morning. Now we're back in John chapter 12 as we continue on through the passage and through the text. It's very interesting what we're going to find out. We're going to learn some truths this morning about what I call the hard but glorious road of following Jesus. The hard but glorious road of following Jesus. If you've been a Christian, a Jesus follower, for any length of time, you know that what Jesus is about to say here, you know it's the truth. You also know this, friend, that our culture, and I suppose it's always been this way, our culture and our world and even our own flesh It cries out for the easy road, the smooth way, and the well-traveled path. We see that in our kids. We see it in our culture. We see it in our co-workers. We even see it, if we were honest, we see it in ourselves. We all have a natural bent and tendency to crave what is easy. No wonder in the famous poem, the road less traveled, (laughs) the path that was well-worn and well-taken. And we see that. We look around today and we see the path of mankind that's well-worn, well-taken. In fact, Jesus even addressed that in Matthew chapter 7. Listen carefully what your Bible says. In Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Jesus said, Enter in at the straight The word straight there is an interesting word. It literally means narrow gate. The gate that has many obstacles standing close by. In other words, it's difficult to get in. It's difficult to make it in, make it through there. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And Jesus said, there are many that be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate. Narrow is the way which leads to life, and there be few that find that. The popular road, the easy road, the smooth path, the smooth road, the wide road, seems like everybody's on that road. Everybody's just going with the flow, swimming downstream. But Jesus said, if you're going to have life eternal, if you're really going to be one of my disciples and my followers, you've got to swim upstream. You've got to go through the narrow gate, the straight gate, the hard gate. Jesus is in the temple here in John 12. It's the very same day that he made his triumphal entry, we believe. And so I want you to look at what the scripture says Here in verse 20 of John chapter 12, listen carefully now and let's let the seed of the word take root in our hearts this morning. 
And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came, therefore, to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Or in other words, we'd like to see Jesus. We'd like to meet him and have a conversation with him. We'd like to see Jesus. And Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus about this dialogue with the Greeks. Verse 23, and Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat or a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. You say, Brother Christian, is Jesus saying I should hate myself? What's Jesus saying here? We're going to find out in just a minute. Look at verse 26. Now, if any man serve me, Jesus said, let him follow me. Where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, watch this, him will my father honor. The hard but glorious road of following Jesus. I notice, first of all, this passage tells us and shows us in verse 20, 21, and 22. Here's the first truth that we learn. Now listen carefully. That salvation is for all people in all nations. We see that here in verse 20 when the Greeks come to Philip and they say, Now, sir, we want to see Jesus. They come to Philip and people have wondered why. Why did they pick Philip? There are all kinds of possible reasons why these Greeks came to Philip. You see, these Greeks were Greek proselytes to the Jewish faith. They had come to Jerusalem That week for the Passover, remember last week we talked about that the population of Jerusalem around the Passover time would swell maybe even tenfold from what it normally was because proselyte Jews, Gentiles and Greeks and other nationalities that had converted to Judaism, the Jewish religion, they would come and gather from all over the known world if they could make it there. It was kind of like a pilgrimage that they would make. And so they were there here at this time and, and they had heard about Jesus. They wanted to see him. I'm sure by this time, word had spread. I mean, remember, he had just cleansed the temple and had just driven out the money changers and those that perverted the purpose of God's house. Remember that last from last week. And I guarantee you that caused a ruckus. So it was obvious that Jesus was in the building. Jesus was there in the courtyard. Now there was a certain portion of the temple that the Gentiles couldn't go into. They could enter, but they had to stay in what is called the court of the Gentiles. They couldn't go any further. And so it's most likely that these Greeks were standing there restricted in the court of the Gentiles, and they couldn't go into the part of the temple where Jesus was. And so they find Philip. 
Some believe that they picked out Philip because Philip, Philip is a Greek name. Philip uh, was from Bethsaida, which was a Hellenized, or we would say it was a Greekized area there in northern Israel. Philip was most likely able to speak and understand the Greek language conversationally. And so it was most likely that this was known to those Greeks that were standing there. And so they picked Philip. Perhaps it was reported to these men that Philip was the one disciple who would more than likely be the most sympathetic to their culture, to their customs. And so they pick him and they said, sir, we'd like to see Jesus. I like what one writer said that these men from the West represent at the end of Christ's life. What the wise men from the East represented at the beginning. (laughs) Because both groups came seeking one thing. They wanted to see Christ. They wanted to see the Messiah. And I want to say to you and remind you today that these men, we believe these Greeks, they truly really did want to see Jesus for the right reason. I want to remind you this morning of what the Bible says in Romans 1.16. Listen carefully. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, here it is, to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, but also to the Greek. In other words, he says it's not just the Jews that Christ came to save. Christ came to save the world. He came to save the Jews, he came to save the Greeks, he came to save the barbarians, that was the uncultured or uneducated. He came to save everybody in between. He came to save the heathen, he came to save those who were far, far away from God. It matters not the country, the ethnicity, it matters not the language, it matters not what portion of the world individuals are from. I want to just remind us this morning, I know you know this, but let us praise the Lord for it. The gospel and salvation is for every single person who breathes upon the face of this earth. Jesus wants to save everyone and the gospel comes to the nations and it comes to you and I. The very reason most of us in this room have the gospel is this reason right here, that Jesus wanted to save the nations. You say, why do you say that, preacher? Because last time I checked, most of us are not Jewish. <laughs> now, you may have some Jew, Jewish blood in your lineage or in your history, in your family, but most of us don't have Jewish blood. And so, therefore, under the old system of what the Jews taught, <laughs> they thought and believed that they were the only ones who were privy to the grace of God. But friend, I just want to say, aren't you glad this morning that the grace of God covers all of us who would believe on Jesus Christ? So we ought to rejoice and bless the name of Jesus that the gospel and Christ intended for his salvation, his gospel to reach the ends of the earth. And thank God that the gospel got to us because somebody took this command and took this very seriously. And can I say this, just make this little interjection here. We, too, are to take this very, very seriously and be a part of getting the gospel across the street and around the world. So the second thing, not only do we learn that salvation is for all people and nations, and by the way, that includes you. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you've never truly been born again. His salvation, the gospel, the gospel story that is the power of God unto salvation... Jesus wants to save you. 
So, preacher, most everybody that comes to our church is saved. Hey, hey, I never want to preach, especially on Sunday morning, and not give an opportunity for people to trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You're here this morning, you might be wondering, why on earth did I come here this morning? Can I tell you there's a reason? God in his sovereign providence has brought you here to this service so you could be loved on and convicted and spoken to by the Holy Spirit of God as he draws you to himself. The second truth we learn is this, that Christ's death on Calvary was the divinely appointed pathway to his glorification. His death on the cross was Christ's divinely appointed pathway to glorification. Notice what he says in verse 23 now. So Philip and Andrew come to Jesus. And you know, it's interesting in the Bible, you see Philip and Andrew mentioned together. Anytime you see Philip and Andrew, most of the time, they're either getting somebody to Jesus or they're trying to get Jesus to somebody. And so these two dynamic witnesses, <laughs> they come to Jesus and they say, Lord, we've got to tell you something. There's a group of Jews over here. They're in the court of the Gentiles or a group of Greeks. They're in the court of the Gentiles and they can't come in here to where you are. But they'd like to see you. They'd like to have a conversation with you. And they kind of just throw that out there to Jesus to see what he's going to do. And it's interesting how he responds. Look at verse 23. Now, if I was writing the story, which I'm not and I don't, by the way, I would have written in here, I would have arranged it for Jesus to just write immediately, just walked over to the Greeks. That's not what he did. The truth is, we're not sure he ever walked over there to meet him. But he makes a statement. And here's what the statement is. Look at, look at what your Bible says. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour is come. Stop right there. The hour. That's a good word in John. John began using that word all the way in chapter 2. Where Jesus looked at the crowd at the miracle at Cana of Galilee. And he said, my hour is not yet come. What hour? Well, the hour of his crucifixion. The hour when he would be glorified. The hour when he would sacrifice his life. The hour, the appointed time, that's what it means. The appointed time when he would give his life to fulfill the mission for which he came. You know that God sent him. The Father sent the Son so that he would give his life a ransom for many. And up until this point in Christ, 33 years of living as a human, his three years of public ministry, that hour had not yet come. But now, now it was upon him. Now it was time. Remember, these are the last days and the last week, the last hours in the last week of Jesus' life. And he says to the disciples, he said, listen, fellas, he said, my hour now is come, the hour of my glorification. It is as if Jesus was saying that just as these Greeks wanted to see Jesus, now all of Jerusalem would see him high and lifted up on the cross since his hour had arrived. His death would be the means of his glorification. Jesus' pathway to glory would be through his death. And so he springboards from verse 23 into a very heavy Discussion in verse 24. Notice it with me, please. 
We learn that salvation is for all people, all nations. We learn that Christ's death on Calvary was the divinely appointed pathway to his glorification. In other words, the only way for him to fulfill the purpose was to go to the cross. So then thirdly and finally, we learn that those who follow Jesus will join with him in this same journey. Those who follow Jesus will join with him in this same journey. Verse 24, notice that he says, I say verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone, and if it die, it brings forth much fruit. You see, Jesus gives in these three verses, he gives four hard things in this process of following him. He says, if you're really going to follow me, Now, friend, can I tell you, it's easy for us in church, it's easy for us to do a lot of talky-talky when it comes to following Jesus. But the proof is not in our talk. The proof is in our walk. Are we really going to follow Jesus? And he gives here at least four hard things in this process of following Jesus. He said, first of all, notice what he said. He says, you've got to die to self. Verse 24, he says, if a corn of wheat, a grain of wheat, now hang with me, hang with me now. He says that corn of wheat, if it's going to produce fruit, that grain has to, that seed has to go in the ground and die. He said, but if it dies, it's going to bring forth fruit. But it's got to die first. Jesus is teaching, just as his road, his Calvary road involved death, he's teaching death to self. It's the same principle he taught in Luke 9, verse 23. Listen carefully, listen carefully. And he, Jesus, said to them all, If anybody, any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up your cross meant for them. You take up your instrument of self-execution. They knew what the cross meant. The cross was not an emblem they hung around their neck. It wasn't something that they put up on a wall. The cross meant one thing and one thing only. It meant execution. So Jesus is telling all those who would follow him that you must not just be willing to die to self. He says you must every day die to yourself. Every day. Some of you remember Ted Williams. He was one of the greatest baseball players to ever live. There's something interesting about Ted Williams. Ted Williams, before he died, his son, John Paul, convinced him to agree to be placed in an an experimental-type treatment at his death. It's called cryonics, cryogenics. There's a cryonics or cryogenics lab out in Arizona run by a company called Alcor which literally they take the corpse of the deceased and they freeze the body, hoping that one day that medical research would be such in development that they could unfreeze that body and bring everything back to life and restore life to that corpse. That simply reminds us again, and Ted Williams went through with that and in a way to preserve and preserve and preserve. Self-preservation, friend, and we all face the same tendency. 
See, we can laugh at Ted Williams and say, oh, that's crazy. That's, that's just a bunch of craziness. But the truth is, all of us have a tendency toward, listen now, self-preservation. We want to preserve self. We want to preserve our comfort and our comfort zone. And Jesus said, if you're going to join me on this Calvary road, you've got to die to self. Then he goes on and he says, verse 25, notice what he says. He says, he that loves his life shall lose it. And he that hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. He says, you've got to repudiate your life in this world. That's what he means when he says to hate your own life. He's, he, he, listen, he doesn't mean you stand in front of a mirror every morning and say, Christian Powell, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. He's talking about self-repudiation. Again, denying yourself. Somebody said, does that mean about thinking of yourself last? No, he's saying don't think of yourself at all. That's radical for us. That's radical. We don't like to do that. I, I, I don't like to do that. So it says repudiate yourself in this life. And then he said, number three, hard thing, assume the role and responsibility of a servant. Look at what he says in verse 26. If any man serve me, stop right there. You know what the word serve means? It means to be an attendant like a waiter or a waitress. Yes, sir, may I help you? Yes, sir. What can I do? What can I do? What can I do to serve you? What can I do to help you? If you've ever been to a nice, fine dining restaurant where the wait staff has been very well trained, <laughs> they're there, and sometimes they have the little napkin folded over their arm, and I mean, boy, they look sharp, they look crisp, and I mean just anything. There's been one or two times I've been in a restaurant like that, and I remember the first time I dropped a little bit of breadcrumb right there on my table, the black tablecloth right there. And boy, the uh, light breadcrumb and the black tablecloth, it kind of, you know, it, and so I, all of a sudden, one of those attendants rushed over there and they had this little, <laughs> this little broom thing. I mean, it was small enough where you could brush your mustache with or whatever. But they came over and I'm like, man, what are they doing? And they, excuse me, sir, excuse me. And I'm like, oh, I'm not used to this, bro. I'm used to paper plates and styrofoam cups, amen. Right? That's the word Jesus chose to use. The Holy Spirit chose to use. If you serve me, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do, Lord? Lord, tell me. What do you want me to do, Lord? I'm ready. I'm ready. Hey, is that how we live? I mean, seriously, y'all, come on. Let's just put the jelly jar down on the bottom shelf where we live now. 24-7, every day. How does that translate into your Christianity? 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. Then he says this last thing here, hard thing. Listen, he says, you follow the Calvary road. Verse 26, he said, if you will serve me, let him follow me. 
literally means to be in the same path, same road. I'm going to be on the same road with Jesus. Well, hey, hey, we're about to learn in the next several weeks what that road involved. Remember when he told his disciples, he said, wait a minute, y'all, listen. He said, I'm going to be betrayed, scourged, mocked, beaten, crucified. Y'all still want to join me? Hey, James and John, hey, big talkers, y'all still want to be my disciples? Because y'all are fighting over a throne. Who's going to sit beside me in the kingdom? And I'm telling you right now, you're not going to see a throne. You're going to see execution. You're going to see betrayal. You're going to see hardship. But man, we all want the glorification, though. Jesus said, are you willing? Remember what he asked? We talked about this Sunday night. Are you willing to drink of the cup that I drink from? You sure you know what you're talking about, what you've signed up for? Because the cup I'm about to drink from leads to death. I'm talking to myself now, too. You see, soft Christianity and soft spirituality is the curse of America. I'm talking about we're soft. I'm soft. We're soft. We're even confused about what it means to be soft, I'm afraid. See, we don't operate on truth alone. We've made Christianity something that Christ and the apostles and the early church never intended. We have everything from the extreme of legalism to the extreme of looseness. We can't take biblical rebuke. We hold on to traditionalism tighter than we hold to truth. We say we believe the gospel, but we aren't serious about sharing it. So often churches like ours will use the bus ministry as a badge of honor for churches that we affiliate with. But yet we're just as racist and just as prejudiced as our lost neighbors are. We have a form of godliness, but we deny its true power in reality. We say we want lost people to come to true faith in Christ, but yet we feel uncomfortable with them sitting beside us in the church pew. We don't have meals with them. We don't host them in our homes. We don't interact with them. We keep lost people at arm's length. And I would say that the vast majority of us don't really know many lost people at all. And yet we claim to believe in the gospel. We claim the title salt of the earth, but we don't get out of the salt shaker much. We wear the badge of light of the world, but we spend our time shining in a room already beaming with light. We say we believe in grace just as long as someone hasn't messed up and doesn't really need it. We say we stand for true holiness as long as that means I don't have to face up to and deal with my pride, my resentment, my bitterness, my jealousy, my anger are my areas of struggle that God classifies as sin. We're soft. We want church our way. We want Christianity light. We want what's comfortable, what's easy, what's cheap, what's familiar, what's within our schedule, 
and within our comfort zone. We're more focused on what bugs us about someone else than we are about us individually getting as close to Jesus as is humanly possible. Jesus gave four hard things here. But then before we pray, he gave four glorious things. Notice what he says. He says, he mentions, look, in verse 24, he talks about bearing much fruit. That when we join him on this Calvary road, when we join him on this discipleship journey, this following journey, he says, if you choose to die to self, then you're going to bear much fruit. Then he says, number two glorious thing is you're going to keep your life for eternity. Then he says that you get to join Jesus where he is in glory. Notice what he says right here. He says that if you love your life, you'll lose it. But if you hate or repudiate your life in this world, you'll keep it unto life eternal. And then he says you'll be honored by the Father. Notice what he says, verse 26. He said, if, if any man serves me and if any man follows me, notice what he said, him will the preacher honor. Is that what he says? Him will the world honor. No, no, no. Him will the Father honor. The Father. Now, let me ask you a question, friend. Whose opinion matters? Whose opinion matters? Tell me. The Lord's does. The Father's does. Then why is it that we're so prone and governed by the opinions of other people? And I'm right there with us. <laughs> Remember what Solomon said, the fear of man brings what? A snare. I've been praying all year, all year, God, help me to live for your eyes and your pleasure only, not by the fear of man. God's working that in me. I'm a long way from where I need to be. You see, Christ's death would result in the springing forth of eternal life. Holding to one's life and selfishness and self-preservation results in disappointing loss, self-denial, and self-crucifixion result in eternal life, he said. I like what one writer said. He said, Jesus is dying for our salvation was also his design for our imitation. In other words, what he went through in the steps that he lays out right here, that didn't just lead to Christ's death, but that's something that we should imitate in our lives as well. So I, I want to close with this question, and we're going to pray. Get ready. Now, don't turn me off. I want you to get ready now. Think. Can you point to any reality of self-denial, self-repudiation, ridicule, rejection by others, persecution, verbal scorn, threats, or disenfranchisement because you are a follower of Jesus? When's the last time you got laughed at? When's the last time you got left out? When's the last time you got rebuked, scorned, persecuted, mistreated, misunderstood, falsely accused? Because you were following Jesus. When's the last time you got inconvenienced? 
because you were following Jesus. When's the last time you made a sacrifice of any kind at all because you were following him? And if your answer this morning is, I can't remember, then it very well could be based on the authority of God's word you're really not a Christ follower you can be you can change that today now friend we've heard the truth it's been preached and now it's time for us to respond to it I don't know what this is going to look like in your life I know truth when it's applied it reaches down into every fabric of our being and our life. Why don't you this morning say, Lord, I want you to get me as close to this road as is humanly possible. You put me on this road. Lord, you help me be a follower of Christ. You help me to die to self. Lord, I need your help to repudiate self. I need your help to be your servant, to be your follower. Lord, I recommit my life to be your follower today. Every head bowed, every eye closed, please.